Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Ephesians, chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord. So far, the sermon is perfect. You just heard the text. And you ought to amen at the end. When we say this is the word of God, you ought to resonate with an amen. amen. With me, it can get weaker. But when it's God talking, you ought to amen it. Say, so be it. This is the word of the Lord, right? We don't preach fables. We don't preach uh, uh, Reader's Digest summaries. We preach what God said. That's what matters. We're looking at foundations for living. And we've been looking at the subject of God, which is vast. And now we look at something as vast. We've been looking at the love of God. And we looked at five aspects of that love. God's love among the Trinity for themselves. Two, God's love for creation. Three, God's love towards a lost world, John 3.16 love. Then we looked at God's love for his chosen, his chosen people Israel, his chosen church, and uh, the particularity of that love. And then we looked uh, the last two weeks, the conditionality of God's love. God does things for those who love him that he doesn't do for anybody else. Today, I want us to look at God's love is the fountainhead, the fountainhead of his mercy and his grace. You need to get these words, uh, common words. You know, we sing uh, uh, Amazing Grace, and you can't sing Amazing Grace too much today. It's not on K-Love. You know, it's not hop, it's not hip, it's just right. 
amazing grace. Does grace amaze you? They say there's no word for grace like amazing. And we're going to look at that. Let me say two things, mercy and grace, what the difference is. When it says that God is merciful, it means he pities those suffering from any of the consequences of sin. And guess when sin came to the world, it was like uh, an inkwell was poured into the fountain of the human family, and it was poisoned. And so everything, sin, uh, aging, death, all of these things are the outworking of the sentence of death that he told Adam would happen. But God, God, the same God says, I feel pity, I feel mercy, I feel compassion for those suffering from the effects of sin that came to the world. The leper that cries, Jesus said, I feel compassion. Whether it's a blind Bartimaeus and have mercy on me, he feels mercy. And what that mercy means, I want to spare you I want to relieve you from the consequences of sin and misery that you're suffering from. I choose to be merciful to those who have rebelled against me. That's mercy, to spare us what we deserve and to feel our predicament. Then grace, on the other hand, I want to give you something Mercy is I want to spare you something. Grace is I want to give you something that you can never earn or deserve. We used to use on grace, it's old, but it's still accurate. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. And that can help you remember that. So we want to look at what God's love Produce in mercy and grace. And so in Ephesians, the first three verses describe what we are by nature, just by nature. Every human being was born with this problem described in verses 1 through 3. Then we'll pick up what you become by the grace of God because God is gracious, loving, and merciful. We want to see the radical change he makes. Let's begin. If you can just remember the initial D, I've got four D's. If that'll help you, what he says about us. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, what does that mean? When Adam sinned, God said, In the day you sin, you will die. Did Adam die? Why did he live to be over 900 years of age? Well, something died that day, but it wasn't his body. It began to die. But I think he lived 900. That's not doing too bad. How are you doing? How close are you to 100? (laughs) What died is the relationship with God A barrier came immediately in the constitution of mankind 
And immediately by nature, they begin to hide. They begin to feel shame. They begin to feel guilt. And they begin to blame each other. It's just born in You're going to die to me. You're going to blame Eve. Eve's going to blame the serpent. Uh, you're going to be running. You're going to be hiding. What has happened? The presence of spiritual death is you run from God. You hide from God. You blame why, whatever. Or you, you blame people who blame never get well, but they love to do it anyway. Blame, blame, blame. Death, separation. And he said the thing that was the evidence of our death is we were full of trespasses and sins. Trespasses is a word to step alongside of, sometimes translated transgression. It means I was constantly stepping over the boundaries that God set. Stepping over the boundaries. Sin means literally to miss the mark. It was used of a marksman shooting an arrow and it fell short. I fall short of divine expectations. I don't do what God wants done just naturally. It's evidence of the death in me. I want to trespass. I don't want to keep, and it's inherent in my nature. I'm born opposed to God. I might graduate from Harvard. I might be nice, nice. I may not grow up in a gang, and I may not have done anything that would shock anybody, but I at my heart am dead to loving God, dead to obeying God. Matter of fact, my favorite occupation in America, I'll make myself God. And so we are a humanistically driven culture. It's about us. He goes on that I was driven by the devil uh, apart from Christ. He said, I walked according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now energizing, that word work there is energe, energizing, the sons of disobedience. Until you know Christ, you have another master, and he's a slave driver. You are a slave to the devil. You are energized by him to do his will. You know, no one was born in this world a Christian. Are you aware of that? You weren't born a Christian. You were born a child by spiritual birth of Satan. That's scary, isn't it? You remember the Jews got in an argument with Jesus in John 8, and they begin to say, we don't need you. Abraham's our father. We've got the right heritage. We've got the right religious connections. And Jesus said, if you were of Abraham, you would believe in me. But because you're of your father, the devil, John 8, 44, his will you will do. And he's a murderer from the beginning. And guess what? You're going to murder me. And they did. You are energized by Satan. You don't hear it in conservative churches much. But in churches I grew up in, we used to talk about demon-possessed people. Do you think people can be demon-possessed? They sure were in the time of Jesus. Demon-possessed. I mean, 
Did you realize that when you read Mark 5 and the maniac of Gadara, that Jesus addresses the spokesman for the demons and he calls him legion? And the Roman legion started at 2,000 to 3,000 men. So imagine, I really can't get my hands around it, that a person having 2,000 spirit beings living in one body. Would that be possible? Ask Jesus. Read the narrative. Demons would cry out, thou art the Christ. There's never been an atheistic demon. In the temptation of Christ, you know what it says in the Greek? Since you are the Christ, turn these stones to bread. See, I, I, I wish that was my temptation. Turn these stones to bread. Got it. No problem. The devil's never tempted me to do that because he knows I can't do it. Why was it a temptation to Christ? Because he could do it. He's God. I know you're God. I know what you can do. But here he is. You were driven as an unsaved person. You're under the slavery and the taskmaster of Satan, and you're energized to do his will. I'm amazed at what people are able to do in sin. The pace, the energy. Stay in a bar till 3 in the morning and go to work at 7.30. You can't do that. Oh, yes, you can. I had a brother that could. Where'd you get that energy? I'm being energized. I'm being, how did you party all night? I'm energized by the God of this age. He could energize you to sin, energize you to do this, energize that. And then I see folks get saved and they start yawning. Why did you get so sleepy? Well, I got saved. Man, you had energy. You could boogie all night before you were a Christian and still keep your job and still keep going. Where was it? Satan is energizing me. He's stronger than meth. He's stronger than anything. He'll drive me to my death. I was a slave, slave-driven man or woman, and Satan was the taskmaster. Besides that, I was driven by my lust. He says here, the lust I was driven by. Notice what he says. We had the passions of our flesh, strong desires, strong carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were driven by Satan and driven by our passions, and all of it was away from God. All of it was against God. This is what God saw in you and I before we knew Christ. This is no special category of sin. It's that, oh, yeah, I know he was. You were. And you might have been saved young age and kept from a lot. Praise the Lord. But left untouched by the grace of God, this would have been your manner of life. You can be a nice sinner and still go to hell. What do you think drives a nice sinner? Wealth, power, prestige, cool. You see, if the devil came in this room, he wouldn't look ugly. He would look like someone you'd want to follow. Are you aware? If the devil came here today, you'd want to vote him in as pastor. Let's get somebody beautiful up here. He's beautiful, and he's wiser than anybody in this room. 
He knows more than anybody else in this room. But he's a rebel. He hates God. And he can deceive you. If it wasn't for God. Then he says, we were children of wrath. Notice that. And we're by nature, by nature, my natural bent, I was a child of wrath, an object of divine wrath like the rest of mankind. John 3.36 says, every man outside of Christ is abiding beneath the wrath of God. You have a well-deserved judgment coming from God, and if you remain there and die without Christ, you'll taste his judgment. But he gave a John 3.16 verse, I don't want you to perish. I want you to believe. I want you to come to me. But if you die without coming, without believing, you will be see the sentence of God on the children of wrath. This is a grim diagnosis. Dead towards God. Driven by the devil. Driven by my lust and a divine object of his wrath. That is how I was born and lived until Christ came into my life. Now, let's see if God has any opportunity to show grace and mercy and love. Because if he decides there is no mercy for this kind of people, there's no grace for this kind of, I refuse to love these kind of people. It's all over for all of us. But God, verse 4, watch that adversity. But God, look at it. But God, that is, the, this is going to change everything. But God, being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Three things he says about this but God. This God is rich in mercy. Is that not beautiful? Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I mean, to show mercy on somebody that deserves a penalty. Here he says, but God who's rich in mercy. And then he says, because I've got this great love. Let me say once again, there was never any time in eternity past where grace or mercy was ever shown. The Trinity has never been gracious to one another. They've never been merciful to one another because they always get what they deserve. Honor, glory, majesty. The Father never has shown mercy on his son. No grace. He's treated the son like he is. Then you come down here in the order, God creates spirit beings. Okay? They're all perfect. They're under this perfect sub-ruler called Lucifer, son of the morning. And according to Ezekiel, he uses the old King James word, he trafficked among them. What that means, he was a salesman among them. 
he, he sold spirit beings on an idea, and his idea was, hey, guys, I've seen the throne of God, according to Isaiah 14. I like to move up above it. I like to place my headquarters above God's throne. Why don't you join me, and we'll take over the throne, and you can elevate me. I've been your boss for a long time. Let's do it. And one-third of the spirit beings believed it as unfallen spirit beings. Okay, they rebelled. There's never any place in the Word of God there's any mercy or grace that will ever be extended to those in that rebellion. God is not saying, Satan, if you'll repent, I'll save you. He's not saying, uh, you other lower spirit beings, repent. Uh, Jesus died for you. Jesus didn't die for angels. There's no second chance. Have you ever asked why the two-thirds remain faithful? You know what Timothy called them? No, you don't. He chose them. Some way he preserved them beyond the normal test. He showed mercy and grace on them to keep them from falling the rebellion in some way they were preserved. That would only be the only grace that I know of for them. But then man rebels. Man sins. Man becomes everything Romans 1 says. Vile, corrupt, driven by Satan, driven by lust, on and on and on. And God steps up and he says, you know what? Out of my great love, I've chosen to be merciful to those who have rebelled against me. I've decided out of my great love, I'm going to be gracious to the human family, and I am going to literally save millions who have rebelled against me. And what will you do? What will you do for them? Well, let's start out this way. Since they died, the first thing I like to do is make them alive. That'd be nice. Watch this. Verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. How? Together with Christ. In the Greek, there's a little preposition there, soon, with. You're made alive with Christ. You're raised with Christ. You're seated with Christ. He made me alive when? When I raised my hand to be saved? Are you looking at your Bible? What does it say? I can't hear you. Even when we were a dead man can't get out of the coffin. When did he make you alive? While you were still in your trespasses. He was working in you before you even professed faith. 
He had to give you the life to even walk out of the cemetery. While we were dead, even in, he said, I'm going to make you alive. Well, you can't do that, Lord. You can't do things to me that I don't know about. Yes, I can, just like I can get your mama pregnant without you knowing about it. You're the product. You're not the creator. You don't tell God how he can save you. Boy, have you ever said, boy, I wish I'd had a different set of parents, and they said, and we wish we would have got a different child, but we're stuck with each other. I didn't know what would come out of the womb any more than you. Let's enjoy it. I was made alive. Then it goes on. Down here, watch this. By grace, he just interrupts himself. I mean, he's going to say it, verse 8, but he just, it's like he can't be quiet. You have been saved. Well, all right, wait, Paul. You're going to say that in verse 8. Well, I just got to say it right now. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, this is the history of Christ. We kill him. We nail him to the cross. What's the first thing he needs? He needs to be made alive. He's been killed. Make me alive. Raise me up out of the grave. And when you get me in heaven, seat me like you said. I'm seated at my Father's right hand. This is the same thing he's done for you in your spiritual history. He raised you from the death of your sin, made you alive, raised you up from the muck and the mire of our sin, and now I'm up there seated with Christ right now. Wait, let me ask you something. Are you in heaven right now? I can't hear you. He said you're seated where? Are you? That's weak. I said, are you? You mean I'm already in heaven? I've already landed? So, well, let's see. We're Bible church. Let's read the Bible. I don't want to read your denomination. What does the Bible say? I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places. Wait, wait. You don't get the seat until you get there. Well, you don't know it, honey. God knows more than you. He's got me there already. My body's got to catch up, but I've landed. And, oh, you think I'm making this up. Go back to Ephesians 1. Go back to Ephesians 1, where he said, uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Well, what are we talking about heaven? He said, I've got you up there in my mind. You're seated in Christ. How can it be? Made alive, made to rise, and made to sit in the victory of Christ. Your salvation is all tied up to Christ, not you. You don't have the ability to save yourself. He saves. He raises. He seats you. It's salvation is of the Lord. So if it's dependent on you, you're never going to know if you're going to make it. Because you're liable to flub in the last mile. You've been flubbing most of the way, so what's, don't get shook about the last mile. 
God is saving sinners, not perfect people. That's why I get the pastor. He saves sinners. Then notice verse 7. He did all this so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the coming ages. This is an interesting word. Okay, the Jews thought of time this way. Present age, coming age. That's the way they talk. We're in the coming age, let's say, before Messiah comes, then the future age, life eternal. Here, Paul uses a word, and he uses a verb, ergamai. And ergamai is a verb, and it's using the word coming. It's the word coming, and he says this, in eternity future, the only way you could describe it, when you've got a place without calendars, without clocks, uh, without uh, wristwatches that tell you the day, time will be measured in epics. Epics. And it's believed that in these ages, God will keep revealing things about his motives, about his grace, about his wisdom. But, and the picture is, it's like waves. I believe it was uh, Dr. Linsky who said, it's like waves are rolling in on us through eternity. Wave after wave after wave. And guess what God's going to do? He's going to take the products of his mercy, the products of his grace, save sinners, and he's going to put them on display to show all spirit beings and all the redeemed there, you are the trophies that I redeemed. You are the products of mercy. You're the products of grace. And for all eternity, he's going to let the ages roll in, and we will be in the display case and said, this is what mercy accomplished. This is what grace accomplished. And forever and ever and ever, you and I will be there. And it says, no angel, no man need ever say, I've not been merciful. They wouldn't be here if I wasn't merciful. I've been gracious. Now, you see, some of you, you've never become a Christian because you say, I can't live it. Well, welcome. This is the can't live it family. I said, this is the can't live it family. Uh, I, you'll get to go to heaven if you can live it. No, 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 no. I'm by nature a child of wrath. I don't know. If that's the terms, keep it, Lord. I can't measure up. Well, are you saying you just live like you want? No. I'm just saying God's got to do the work in me or I won't live it. I'm not going to heaven because I'm living it. He saved me because of the cross and because I can live it. No, I'm living it because mercy and grace generate a response of thanksgiving. I don't want to sin against a God I come to love. If you just give me pure law, pure rules like churches are full of, you're just going to set us all up to be a bunch of liars and hypocrites because we can't live it anyway. How about just saying, I'm living under grace, I'm living under mercy, and I want to live in a way that tells him thank you. Thank you. I want to live in gratitude for what God's given to me. 
Then he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. You've been saved. What in the world does it mean to be saved? Well, to be saved, by the way, uh, help me out grammatically. Uh, what is S-A-V-E-D? Is that present tense, past tense? What? Past. And, and let's, go, let's go to Greek. Let's go to, in Greek, it would go this way. It's like, it happened. That's perfect tense. It happened. See, they had a tense that was aorist and just said it happened. But a perfect tense, which this word is, it says, it happened with continuing abiding results. I was born again with abiding results that First John tells you what, I, I want to practice righteousness, I've quit practicing sin, I love Christ, I love the brethren, I want to do the right. I, it happened, but it has an abiding result, and I am the abiding, growing result of it. Can you ever tell a person, you can know you are saved? Can you? Are you saved? Paul said he saved. I'm not under probation. Did you hear me? I refuse to let you put me under to anybody. I have been saved by the work of Christ, by his grace and his mercy, and I am not, uh, I am just cooperating because I've come to love him. But you are a product of, and if you're the one that saves, you ought to get the credit, right? Come on. Now listen what he says to that. He knows that attitude's in you. So he said. And this is not your own doing. Oh, sound like Paul and I wrote this. It, it is the gift of God. What's the gift? The whole thing. Not a result of works. If God could get a thief to heaven without ever giving a tithe check, surely he can get you there. So that no one may boast. And there's nothing more sinful about us than we like to boast and brag. And he said, but I'm going to do it in such a way you can't have human boasting. First Corinthians 2, he said, the reason I chose such weak folks to be saved is that there won't be any boasting in heaven. Because if man does anything, he's going to be sure he gets the credit. Now watch this. First thing, he made us alive. He placed us in Jesus Christ. We are on display for eternity. God has saved us, which means he's delivering us from the consequences of our sins, his wrath, the power of sin. Then he says, finally, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do nothing, which God knew you would be tired before eternity, so he has not asked you to do anything. No, God has designed you for a purpose. 
God has already designed what he wants to do through you. And this, we are his workmanship. The word for workmanship, I don't know if you'll pick it up. It might be, it's a Greek word that goes poeo. It's a long E and a long O, poeo. But the shorter form, the noun form, is poema. We get our word poem from it. And it was used of a masterpiece in poetry. A masterpiece. And so some have translated this, you are his masterpiece. You are his masterpiece. You are his divine workmanship. And you were created in Christ Jesus. You've been designed by him for good works. And it's not just busy activity. I'm working that he is planned. So you've been designed with purpose. God's got a purpose for your life. And it's to do the kind of works and things he has planned to do through you. I ask you, what are you doing for Christ? What are you doing for Christ? I tell of a heartbreaking story, just for the point. It's a sad story. I had a a man that got all crossways and disgruntled. And... uh, he wanted to meet with me to tell me off, and he did. And uh, in the midst of telling me off, uh, he informed me that my preaching no longer met the needs of his life. And uh, I'd been his pastor for 18 years. And uh, he's getting ready to leave the church and gave me a piece of his mind he couldn't easily afford to give away. And... Uh, so when he gets through chewing me out and let, notifying me he's going to leave, uh, we, I, we'd had a guest speaker at the church who spoke that Sunday, and he began to brag on them a lot. So, now, that was a preaching I want. That's, that preaching moves me. That preaching is great, all like that. And uh, uh, the speaker did great. So I said, well, before we leave, I said, you know what? Uh, One thing I must say to you, and what my concern for you is this. I said, uh, how long have you been here? 18 years. Uh, Has has there been any benefit? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, but you just, you've lost it. So, you know, I got to go. I got to get greener pastures. Okay. I said, you know, the thing that breaks my heart for you is if I were to die today, I've at least been able to help you some in 18 years. Would you admit that? Yeah, yeah. Saw him come from the streets of Pinole. Saw him through getting his girlfriend pregnant. Stood there, tried to rescue him. Tried to hold their hand up, blah, blah, blah. And finally I said, you know what? The issue is not whether God is using me, but when is he going to use you? 18 years? And you're saying, you need a better preacher? You need a better life. I've been watching you. You're going down the tubes. You become a church expert. 
And you're going to wind up dying with prostitutes and drugs and broke and your teeth gone from doing meth. You're going to die a desperate, lost man, and you're over here talking about my preaching. What's God doing through you? What did God design you to do? He designed you to do more than listen to sermons and critique preachers. What's God doing through you? What, is this God's plan? Are you living God's plan? Are you living for yourself and critiquing church and critiquing everything? What's wrong with you? Did he save you? That's the thing you've got to ask. If he saved you and you're not doing the works, we have every right to question your salvation. And listen to me. Jesus didn't go around assuring people they were saved. He kept telling them, you better be sure you're saved. The fruit will be known, the tree is known by the product of his life. And some of you say you know him, but I know you're not because there's no good works. You're, you're lazy, you're unengaged, you're, you're pew warmers, you're sermon tasters, but you're not servants, you're not workers. Why? Why can you get away with that kind of response? Because you don't know him. You're lost. You think you're carnal. No, no, you're not carnal. You don't know him. You can't keep from wanting to serve him when you know him. It's in, it's in the DNA. I want to close with uh, two marvelous pieces of what you were like when God found you. I heard years ago a story that I wanted to authenticate, and it was about Michelangelo. When Michelangelo uh, did his sculpture of David and had his pouch there when he went out to fight against Goliath, modern sculpturists and artists still say it's the greatest masterpiece in history. Uh, at least as I read different articles on this, they still say, I forget how many tons the statuary weighed. I know it was over 14 feet tall. It was designed to go up uh, around the surroundings of a cathedral in Florence, but it was so huge, they decided to keep it on the main floor. And we look up this uh, guy by the name of Michelangelo. They, they, he's the greatest artist of the time. Uh, at that time, I believe he was 26 years old. And uh, he said, I, I need to find a piece of marble to do this request. They had had two other men, Agostino De Ciuccio, Di Duccio and Antonio Rosalino. In 1495, they took a piece of this marble they looked at it for a piece, and they said, there's too many flaws, too many imperfections. They used the Italian word taroli, T-A-R-O-L-I, taroli. They said, too many imperfections. They scrapped it. It was put in the library field of a sanctuary and lay there for 25 years, seeing that it wasn't good enough to do any work on. Michelangelo comes along, finds the scrapped marble, takes it, works on it day and night for two and a half years, 
and creates a world masterpiece. You and I were on the scrap heap of humanity when the master found you. And people would say, there's no good. They're just nothing but a drug addict. They're nothing but a pimp. They're nothing but a harlot. They're nothing but a thief. They're nothing but a proud, self-sufficient, arrogant man. We were everything that was obnoxious to God. Tell you a story. I just came back from Oregon. I was with this Justin Green that's fighting for his life. Gave him 30% chance of living to survive colon cancer. Went up there and he introduced me. They, they introduced me one day at a luncheon to some drug addicts and some thugs that had come to Christ. And man, I'm glad I met them there and nowhere else. These were bruisers. The one guy, Matthew, I'll spare the last name, Puerto Rican boy. He said, I grew up in New York City. My father was a Puerto Rican gangster. My brother, my twin brother, we both have seen him kill men. We have rode with him when he dumped them off the bridge. And we grew up with him beating up our mother, doing drug traffic, serving time, died in prison. This is how we grew up. Matt grew up in this youth group in that church for some time, pulled a knife several times on youth leaders of the church and they happened to be able to get away and, and stay alive. His brother got so strung out on meth, he committed suicide at about, uh, he was in his 30s, I believe it was. Blew his brains out. And that church youth group had had him at times in and out. They were always the rowdies in the youth group, tearing things up, tearing things up. Just hoods, just hoods, just hoods. Matt, I just talked a week ago. I said, uh, I talked talk to the pastor. I said, uh, tell me, how's things going? He said, let me tell you what happened last weekend. Yeah, tell me. He said, Matt, this Matt guy, another guy stolen his wife and two children. He's been evangelizing him, the guy that stole his wife. And... Uh, on the weekends, he goes to projects where there's a bunch of poor kids, and a lot of times he does this for prisoners' kids, but sometimes he just goes to a rough neighborhood in these apartment complexes, and he loads his car with toys. I obviously get some help from the church, and they go down there, and he evangelizes all day Saturday, and one of the big attractions for the kids is he gives them toys, and he shares the gospel with them. While he was doing this, someone from the second or third story of these apartments started heckling him and belittling him. Her little girl was down there saying, you Christians are phony, you Christians are this, you Christians, you're just trying to be seen good. Get out of here, cussed him. Get out of here, get out of here, we don't want you. Later that night, that woman was driven back to the apartments and dropped out in the plaza with a heroin overdose dying because some gang members took her out, loaded her with drugs, dropped her off to be dead. Someone called 911. They got her in in time to reverse the heroin effects. 
saved her life, winds up in the hospital. Who's going to take care of her girl? Who's going to take care of the house? Well, Matt, the killer's boy, Matt, I don't know how much time he served in prison. Matt, that could kill you in a moment outside of Christ. A body of uh, an Arnold. Buff, tough, mean. Now our brother. He mobilized the church. They went in, cleaned the house, filled all the cupboards with food. When you're a drug addict, you don't eat too good, especially your children. He had mercy on her. Had mercy. Went in there, loaded it. Three days after that, she gets out of the hospital. He drives over. The pastor's telling me he leads her to Christ. And now we got a saved sister in Salem. And hopefully a saved little girl. We just heard Katie Anderson yesterday saying in Nepal where her ministry takes her. He said, we've got to save girls before the 13, because at 13, they're kidnapped or they're sold to the brothels of India at the tune of 13 to 14,000 a year. He said, some villages have no girls under the age of 13. They've all been sold. And here's a girl that was the women's minister for Ed Young's church in Dallas, 3,000 women ministry. We brought her out here to be our women's leader, Bible teacher. She said, no, I, I can't find myself yet. We have the Wednesday night meeting service, helping rescue women, girls being sold into sex trade. And this Dallas grad whiz girl that did a THM in three years, not four years, brain, outstanding. I want to spend my life rescuing girls from the trash heap of this world. You see, the grace of God caused men and women to start hospitals, schools, leprosariums, and even when Jerry Falwell, when he was fighting abortion, you know, it's one thing to fight an abortion uh, epidemic in this country. The thing that moved me about Thomas Road Baptist Church, they were one of the first I heard of to buy and renovate a house to let the girl live there while she carried her baby. It's one thing to say it's wrong to get pregnant. It's another thing, what are you going to do with her now that she is? Shame her? or house her, evangelize her, and feed her. There's a classic, uh, classic poem. I don't have time to read it with feeling, but it's too good not to know that the masterpiece here, I thought of the poem, The Touch of the Master's Hand. It's classic. Bear with me while I just read it to you. "'Twas battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it hardly worth his while to waste his time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. "'What am I bid, good people?' he cried. "'Who starts the bidding for me? One dollar? One dollar? Do I hear two? Two dollars? Who makes it three? Three dollars? Once? 
$3 twice, going for three. But no. From the room far back, a gray-bearded man came forward and picked up the bow. Then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening up the strings, he played a melody, pure and sweet, as sweet as the angel sings. The music ceased and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, What now am I bid for this old violin? As he held it aloft with his bow, one thousand, one thousand, do I hear two, two thousand, who makes it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, going and gone, said he. The audience cheered, but some of them cried. We just don't understand what changed its worth. A heckling drug addict prostitute girl in Salem. What changed her worth? Swift came the reply, the touch of the master's hand. And many a man with life out of tune, all battered and bruised with hardship, is oxen cheap to a thoughtless crowd, much like that old violin. The gospel we preach. That's why I said, Sean, this is your day. God simply wants to give you a gift. And the master wants to tune you up and take you from the trash heap of time and make you so you could sing his praises forever and say, I never had worth until Jesus came. My brother, when he's having his surgery, and in those long moments, told me one day, why would he save me? I wouldn't save me. Why would he? He's full of mercy. He's full of grace. Because he's got more love than the ocean filled with ink and every man a quill could ever describe. He is the John 3.16 love. Have you ever let him save you and come in? If you'll believe him, he'll do the rest. He'll do the rest. Our Father, we thank you that mercy found us, that grace took us in, and that we've been clothed, seated, raised, made alive in Jesus. Everything we have, we can only boast in Emmanuel. As the old hymn, the sands of time are sinking, says, there will be no boast in Emmanuel's land. We'll only brag on the lamb that got us there. Glory be to your name. If there's anyone here today that's never received Christ, I pray they would not let the devil show them a bunch of good works and a bunch of standards they think they have to achieve. Can they receive a gift? Will they receive the gift? God has given his best in Jesus. All he asks is receive him. I'll give you life. I'll give you life. I'll make you my own, and you'll be able to know I will be saved for eternity. Saved. And would you deliver the rest of us with maybe a nonchalant, boring, 
non-comprehensive view of the grace of God. We throw it around like cliches, like, oh, the grace of God. Oh, would, oh, would that we could fathom its depth and that we'll be in heaven because God chose to be gracious, chose to be merciful. But God, who is rich in mercy, has loved us. We bless your name. And Father, when you get me to heaven, I'm never going to let you forget it. I'm going to praise you forever and ever and ever. Amen. God bless you.